1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The journalist Anna Bodkin has been immersing herself in the lives of other people for years. From carpet weavers in a remote Afghan village to the Fulani cowherders in Mali. These are people and places that are often ignored or forgotten, especially by those of us living in the global north. But no matter how little attention we pay to these places, our lives are hopelessly entwined, connected by the actions of our governments, our corporations, and really ourselves, even if we don't choose to see it. That connection is especially strong in Joal, an artisanal fishing port in Senegal, where fishermen go out every day in beautiful, brightly colored pirogues to fish by hand, not machine. And these fishermen are facing the consequences of an ocean decimated by climate change and overfishing. They're the subject of Anna Bodkin's new book, Fisherman's Blues, a West African community at sea. She joins us to talk about what it was like to immerse herself in a life so different from her previous landlocked one. Thanks for being here, Anna.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So um, first of all, the question that comes to mind is why go out to sea when all of your adventures so far have been on land?
1: Well, let's start from what I do. I, I write about other ways of looking at the world with the idea that my stories will help bring the world to some kind of um, accountability. So I take issue with the word adventures. Um, I do not, I'm not an adventurer, I'm a storyteller, and I work alongside people. Also, I grew up in the Soviet Union, so I grew up behind the Iron Curtain, and I was a worker correspondent for 15 years. So boundaries are a very significant subject throughout my working life. Yeah, you know, I've been a writer for 22 years, and throughout my life in general, uh, I'm 42, uh, most of my life I've spent crossing different kinds of borders and adjusting my own boundaries. So I was curious about what it is like to work and live traversing the utmost boundary, or what I thought was the utmost boundary, the boundary between the solid, the terra firma, and the unfathomable, the ineffable, the ocean. And I wanted to learn from people who have generationally been traversing that boundary on a daily basis. So I I went to work with fishermen who go out every day and whose fathers and grandfathers had gone out every day, hoping to learn something about living on a boundary, living in that ecotone.
0: So, I mean, there are a lot of boundaries between land and sea out there to choose from of all the ports and all the shores. Why Joal in Senegal?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I had just um, my previous book called um, Walking with Abel. I, I spent a year herding cattle with nomadic Fulani cowboys in Mali, which is a, a neighbor country of Senegal in West Africa as well in the Sahel. So I was interested in learning more about the region. I also was interested in working in the waters that are being very rapidly decimated in the name of the avarice of the global north, decimated both by overfishing and by climate change. Joal is the largest artisanal fishing port in Senegal. Um, 2,100 pirogues are flagged to Joal. It also has a very significant place in the history of the world in the Western civilization in that it is one of the first ports where Portuguese slave traders landed and this is before Columbus and in fact Joal does bear the scars and the mnemonics of, of, of that slave trade. I saw tuna fruit, prickly pear along the coast in Joal and prickly pear is native to the Americas so this is something that came when ships would come to pick up a new shipment of people. You know, I think so much about our connectedness as humans in the world, and, and that's a very palpable reminder of how we're connected. So that also is why Joel. Mm-hmm.
0: There have been so many changes in Senegal over the centuries, in including the slave trade. Can you talk about how climate change and overfishing have affected Joal in
1: particular? Joal began um, probably 900 or 800 years ago as a, a non-fishing village. Actually, it was a farming village, Serer farm, farming village. And it was a fairly small village, um, maybe 5,000 inhabitants um, in the 60s, 1960s, with one fisherman. One, one. Commercial, one commercial fisherman. Uh, and he was extremely successful. And I spoke to his descendants and his grandson says, you know, back then owning a boat was like owning a brick of gold. Like, you know, you were rolling in it. Rolling in it also because fish were, were, were plentiful in the sea. Then um, simultaneously two things happened. One, um, there was a, a tremendous drought in the Sahel that hit very hard the hinterlands, forcing a lot of farmers to go west to the seashore and try their luck at sea. At the same time, people in the west discovered that fish is good for you. (laughs) And so there was this spike in the demand for fish. Another interesting thing about Joal, Joal lies about 90 miles south of Dakar, the capital of Senegal, and the westernmost point of West Africa. It also is a division point between two currents, and the current south of Dakar makes the ocean very placid and easy to fish in, and the current north of Dakar is very stormy. They call it man's sea, a sea that only a real man can, you know, can stomach. So you had this exodus of farmers who were coming to the shore from eastern Senegal to try their luck at sea, and you simultaneously had this influx of fishermen from the north who had traditionally been fishing in this stormy sea, but the demand for fish was so high, and it was so much easier to fish in Joal. So fast forward to 2015, Joal is a port of 47,000 people, and uh, everybody in Joal is one way or another engaged in the fishing industry, be that fishing, or processing fish a lot of the fish that is processed in Israel and it's processed it's processed in the open air uh, there are sm- there's this gigantic area where fish is smoked and that fish goes inland to Niger to Mali to Burkina Faso um, and then there's uh, several ice factories that put the fish the catch on ice and truck it to Dakar where it gets processed for real and shipped a lot of it gets shipped to Europe. Oh wow. Yeah.
0: Um, How did you go from, you know, researching or knowing about these quandaries in the abstract and then going
1: and getting on a pirogue and going out to sea? Well, I showed up in Joal and came to one of those gazebos where fishermen hang out and hung out with fishermen until one of them said, 6.30 in the morning, tomorrow, show up yeah you know it's interesting, so I've been doing this kind of work um, for twenty two years. I've been insinuating myself into people's lives, and it never ceases to astonish me that I do get invited over and over into very intimate situations in very different under very different circumstances, you know in in Iraq, under fire, or in a refugee tent in North Caucasus in Russia or in someone's kitchen or on someone's pirogue, you know, in so many different countries, in so many different continents, that it actually leads me to believe that if so many different people have chosen to invite me into their lives, then I am also capable of choosing to invite somebody who's a complete stranger into my life so generously, as are you, as are our listeners, which means that we have this capacity to be extremely human to one another, which gives me such tremendous hope, but I have no answer. I don't know why. It's just, but it's something, it's maybe this kind of internal goodness that we all, inherent goodness that we all carry that allows me to show up, you know, I'm a white woman, Women in general are not particularly welcome on fishing vessels culturally anywhere. And I show up, you know, I don't really speak either French or Wolof. I show up on the shore and these guys say, sure, this is really weird, but let's give it a try. So I guess it's kind of like that,
0: Mm -hmm. I imagine. You spend a lot of time on one boat in particular, which if I'm not mistaken is the very first boat that you get on. Mm-hmm. The Sakare Suare. And, of course, like your relationship with Ndongo, the captain, and his entire family, who are most of the crew members, leads to all kinds of tributaries, you know, boat building, into a marriage ceremony. So can you talk about your relationship with that family and sort of where it took you beyond just being on the pirogue all day for many days in a row? Well,
1: it's 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 a pretty long-running relationship in my life. First of all, I have to say that Ndongo and I are friends, You don't go fishing with someone who's just, you know, an acquaintance. We're talking about going out to open sea, like 22 miles offshore with no life preservers. You'd better be good friends with that person, right? (laughs) And then, you know, and then the the idea that I'm a woman uh, and I'm slightly older than Dongo, but not that much older. So, you know, then I have to make sure that it's okay with his family that I'm going out because he has three wives. So I have to make sure that the wives are my friends and that they know that there is no funny business between me and their husband, you know, or there are other women in the family whose husbands are coming on boat with us. So, you know, so you have to make a relationship with this big community that is this one household and you want to create a relationship because how else are you going to share, you know, months and months of, of life? Otherwise it would be unbearable. Can you imagine working, you know, risking your life, um, for several months in a row with strangers or people who are obnoxious to you or people you don't like, I- impossible, right? So, so this is, this is a very close, these are very close relationships. So Ndongo and his children and his brothers and his half-brothers and his wives um, and their mothers and their parents, we share, you know, this, this time of, of our lives that they chose to share with me and that I asked to be invited into. So let's talk about
0: how you spent your time. What's a What's a day at sea like? Well,
1: a day at sea means you show up before dawn break at the tideline. Your boat most likely is anchored just off the shore, so somebody wades out, usually the youngest member of the crew usually a kid of about you know 11 or 12 years old wades out drags the boat closer to shore everybody takes off their flip-flops wades aboard um you put your flip-flops in the hold in the stern next to the motor because a boat is treated the way a house is treated and you never wear your shoes indoors so you leave your flip-flops by the motor Then you take up your positions aboard the boat, and then the helmsman, usually the captain, uh, will start the motor, and off you go into the open sea, hoping to see fish. And running fish has a certain look to it. You can see it when you're standing or sitting in a boat. It looks like an indentation in the surface, or it looks like a shifting silver nebula that you can Sort of vaguely trace with your eyes, and so what the crew does is um, they stare at the sea, hoping to see fish. And once they see fish, they signal with their hands because the helmsman, who is the captain, who's sitting in the stern, he can't hear anything over the rev of the motor, so he has to look at you. So he's looking at your arms, and you're looking at the sea. And when you see any kind of fish that looks like it could be a big school. Then you signal to the captain, and the captain knows how to go around. He will try to outrun that school while you're casting net. So you're basically encircling the school of fish with your net, hoping that it gets caught. And it's pretty labor-intensive work. Especially there are several different kinds of net, and you, if you're using a purse seine net, which means There is a very thick line running at the bottom of this net that can be two miles long. You have to then cinch it so that the net becomes a purse and the fish is caught inside that purse. Now imagine a purse that's two miles in circumference, right? And the weight of that waterlogged line that's three or four inches thick against its own weight, against the pull of the sea, against the tide, the current. I have witnessed crews of 20 men sweat boats full of sweat just because of how hard that work is so it's extremely hard and then you rest a little bit you hydrate and then you start hauling that net and if you're lucky or if you're really fast then you have caught a good school of fish but there's also a chance that you've caught absolutely nothing and so an hour or two hours of your effort tremendous physical effort have gone to waste, and now you have to do it all over again. I cannot imagine
0: doing that and doing it over and over again because the seas are emptying. It sounds heartbreaking. Um, And it makes me wonder, given how much the seas have been depleted for the past several decades, um, are more men leaving the trade, or is it the same number of fishermen, more fishermen just going out to sea For longer and getting less catch. Well, here's the catch.
1: (laughs) There's a beautiful poet named Aishan Hutchinson who talks about post-post-colonial world. So we live in a post-post-colonial world. We should not fool ourselves. This is not a post-colonial world. Because Senegal remains a very colonial country. Education in Senegal isn't French. It's Francophone in schools. Except the people of Senegal, for the most part, don't speak French at home. They speak Wolof or they speak Serre. So when you send your son to school, um, and school is mandatory for all small kids, right? You send your son to school, and then around fifth or sixth grade, schoolwork, homework begins to be complicated. And he brings that homework home, but you can't help him because you don't really understand the French. And that's when... You go well. Maybe you know he's going to fail. Maybe he can come aboard with me instead. This is what I did when I was a kid. So let's just do this. So in a way, this tether to Francophone culture and this reluctance to decolonize the school system is dooming many men to this cycle at sea and literally at sea, but also. Literarily at sea, because the sea is changing so rapidly that the catch in Joal, while the number of boats that are flagged to Joal has increased maybe tenfold, the catch is ten times less than it was a decade ago. It literally is decimated very dramatically because of climate change. Fish just don't run the way they did because the, the salinity of the sea has changed, what fish eat has changed. So, so many factors, mostly. Man made and mostly made by us here in the global north, right? And climate change is not a conversation that is as shrouded in mythology and superstition as it is in the global north. There is no doubt in anybody's mind in sub Saharan Africa that climate change is very real and conversation about climate change is very real among fishermen or farmers in West Africa, in Senegal. So that's the, the tragedy. The tragedy is that men are trapped because there there's no other work.
0: Right, and it's especially devastating to see those changes manifest in a town like Joal, which is so wrapped up in fishing. I mean, as you said, it seems like everybody has something to do with the water in some way. So, I mean, what kind of future is there for a town like Joal?
1: Well, that is very largely determined on how we in the Global North are going to take responsibility for our actions and how we're going to choose to see one another, especially see people who are also sharing this planet, but who don't live next door. And this country has such trouble seeing even people who live next door and recognizing one another's humanity. But but really, The future of of Joal and the future of so many coastal towns that depend on the sea and so many farming places that depend on the the land depends very much on how responsibly uh, industrialized societies are going to act toward the planet and toward the resources and how we're going to keep our avarice in check.
0: Anna Bodkin's book, Fisherman's Blues is loving tribute to the lives of those at sea in Senegal. It's beautiful. And there's a link on our episode page, as well as links to some reporting on the perils facing our global fisheries. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.